Hello and welcome to the podcast for the September issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and I'm joined this month by Sally Vandermeer from The Lancet Oncology. Welcome Sally. A few items to discuss this month. Let's start with some research. This concerns bone mineral density and early breast cancer. You're publishing a sub-study of another piece of research called ABCSG12 for premenopausal women with breast cancer. What is the main study about before we go on and talk about the sub-study that we're publishing here? Well, the ABCSG12 study is a randomised open-label study which has four patient arms. It's designed to investigate the clinical efficacy of ovarian suppression in the treatment of breast cancer. Therefore, all four groups of patients were assigned to receive gozarelin plus either tamoxifen or anastrozole. One of the groups that were assigned to receive tamoxifen and one of the groups that were assigned to receive anastrozole were also assigned to receive zoledronic acid which is a bisphosphonate and this was to help alleviate bone fractures which is a common side effect of hormone therapy. Got it so that's the main study so what is the sub-study concerned with? What was the objective of, of the sub-study and why is it important, this sub, sub-analysis? The sub-study that we have published this month looks at the bone mineral density of the women in the ABC-SG12 trial in a prospective fashion, which means that they took the measurements at the baseline before the trial started at 6, 12, 36 and 60 months. This stud- sub-study is important because this is the first long-term data on bone mineral density for women who are having this hormone therapy as well as bisphosphonate. Can you go on and talk a bit more about the methodology here and also the key results? 404 premenopausal women with breast cancer were randomized to receive one of the four groups of treatment over the three years. Lumbar spine and hip bone mineral density was measured at baseline 6, 12, 36 and 60 months. Patients who were assigned to receive zoledronic acid had a stable bone mineral density at both sites and at 60 months the bone mineral density actually increased above the baseline measurements. For patients who were not assigned to the zoledronic acid there was a significant decrease in lumbar and hip bone mineral density at 36 months which is the time the treatment ended. Interestingly, two years after the treatment ceased, at 60 months, although bone mineral density had partially recovered, it was still below the baseline for these patients. A clear benefit for women who are given zoledronic acid in addition to endocrine therapy. What are the clinical implications of these results? Zoledronic acid is a benefit to patients receiving hormone therapy for breast cancer to prevent the side effect of bone fractures. However, zoledronic acid itself does have symptoms associated with its use, for example, osteonecrosis of the jaw. Therefore, clinicians need to weigh up the best options for their patient. The data in this trial can be used by clinicians to inform their patients so that the best treatment decisions can be made for each individual. Thanks, Sally. And next, a very interesting-looking study. This is an early study which could have future implications for the management of haematological diseases. Can you describe this new approach? Yes, cord blood transplantation is an effective treatment for haematological cancers, but only a small proportion of adult patients currently undergo the procedure as there's very low numbers of nucleated cells in a cord blood unit. Additionally, transplant engraftment is delayed or fails in about 10 to 20 percent of cases. Consequently, cord blood transplantation is associated with a high risk of morbidity and mortality. In this study, the authors first washed the cells from the cord blood sample. 
then using a standard bone marrow aspiration needle, delivered the cell's suspension directly into the iliac crest of the pelvic girdle. We do need to, to stress though, Sally, don't we, that this is a very early study. It's described as phase one stroke two. Yes, indeed. This is very preliminary data, as it is, as you say, a phase one stroke two study. And therefore, the researchers were only seeking to establish whether the treatment was safe and an effective way of delivering the cells. Also, there is no long-term data on this technique. The study has a medium follow-up time of just 13 months. And although the data set is small, the results are encouraging. Do you want to just summarise those? I think these results are very exciting. Of the 32 patients who were given the transplant, 27 had successful engraftments. This was measured by the haematological recovery. Um, The median time to neutrophil recovery was 23 days, with a range of 14 to 44 days. And the median time to platelet recovery was 36 days, with a range of 16 to 64 days. At a medium follow-up time of 13 months, the range here was 3 to 23 months, 16 patients are still alive and in remission. There was a very low incidence of graft-versus-host disease, which is a common side effect for those receiving transplants. For the patients who did have graft-versus-host disease, it was mild and easily resolved using steroids. However, the most exciting news about this form of delivery of cord blood cells is that it was between unrelated donors and recipients, which means that more people will be able to benefit from transplant via this method. And in terms of next steps... I think these data need to be confirmed in larger randomised studies and there needs to be long-term follow-up of the patients who received the transplant. And finally, Sally, sadly, the last in your series looking at cancer in indigenous populations. I found this a really interesting series, which we've discussed on the podcast over the past few months. And this time we're looking at the indigenous population, the Inuit population in the northwestern polar region. I guess to kick off, really... Leaving aside recent changes in lifestyle up until, you know, traditionally, conventionally, what had we known about cancer incidents in this population? Yes, as you say, this is our last review in the Indigenous People and Cancer series. In this series, we've covered the Maoris and Pacific Islanders, Aborigines, Indigenous people in in Africa, and the series culminates in this review on Inuit people. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was very little data on the Inuit populations, and they were believed to be mainly cancer-free. But traditional patterns of cancer are changing, though, aren't they, Sally, in many populations, including this one? Absolutely. A recurring theme in the, th- in the series has been that as the traditions change and the cultures have been exposed to Western practices, the prevalence of cancer increases. During the 20th century, Inuit life expectancy increased. Living conditions changed with the establishment of larger urban communities and st- housing standards improved. The traditional subsistence living of fishing and hunting has given way to employment in public administration, service and trade. Diet has changed from mainly fish and sea mammals to imported food. Tobacco consumption has increased and physical activity has decreased. Consequently, cancer prevalence has increased. Currently, the prevalence rate of cancer are are comparable between the Inuit and the national rates in Canada and America. However, the pattern of cancer is different. Cancers of the breast, prostate, skin and haematologic systems, often seen in Western populations, are low in frequency in the Inuit population. But nasopharyngeal carcinoma and salivary gland cancers are common in the Inuits. 
So what are the future research priorities, you think, Sally, for the Inuit population in terms of cancer prevention and treatment? Well, as we've said, the Inuit populations have a unique distribution of malignant diseases, but we don't know what the genetic environmental causes for these. There seems to be specific risk factors for this population, and identifying these might provide new insight into cancer causality for all populations. The effect of the rapid introduction of lifestyle-associated risk factors into a population with a traditional low risk of malignancies is also a rich source of information for cancer and potentially prevention. Great. Many thanks, Sally. Those were some of the highlights for the September issue of the Lancet Oncology. Thanks for listening. See you next month.